fair warning, this show contains strong language and adult themes from time to time. Sorry, Jerry can't help it. Sick Boy Wolfgang Productions presents The Offering with Jerry Horror. A deep dive into the history of film and its filmmakers. Mostly horror, always genre. Now, the most definitive account of the films made by the most infamous and influential studios of the 1980s, Canon Films. The Canon Film Guide Volumes 1 and 2 gives you the true stories from the people who made them, and truth is stranger than fiction. From American Ninjas to Masters of the Universe, from Charles Bronson to Chuck Norris, from Bloodsport to Texas Chainsaw 2, take it over the top on your Superman 4 quest for peace. These books have got it all, folks. A passionate journey through the highs and lows of pure 80s goodness. The Canon Film Guide illustrates all the behind-the-scenes mayhem of one of the most beloved cult movie factories of all time. We at The Offering highly recommend these books. They are essential reading for any and all film buffs. The Canon Film Guide, Volume 1 and 2, available now at Amazon, iTunes, or wherever finer books are sold. Listeners and fans of The Offering can get their hands on their very own The Offering with Jerry Hara merch, now only at Public. Find your own fresh The Offering with Jerry Hara high-quality merchandise, including t-shirts, hoodies, tank tops, long sleeves, stickers, and mugs. Just like the show, we've got gear that's mostly horror, always genre. The Offering with Jerry Hara Public Store has everything you need to represent your favorite podcast. Folks, head on over to tpublic.com right now and pick up your very own Offering Tea today. Welcome to The Offering with Jerry Hara, the show where we can have a quiet and frank discussion as adults about the things that matter to me, or at least that I think matter to me. Please take a moment to subscribe to our show wherever you get fine podcasts, and hey, stay up to date on future episodes. This week on The Offering, we're taking you back to 1988 with the smash hit, Beetlejuice. Ladies and gentlemen, and friends from beyond the binary, this is The Offering, and I'm your host, Jerry Hara. Folks, glad to have you back. Always glad to see you. Welcome to Season 2 of The Offering, where we take you back to 1988. But first, we got a little business, a little biznatch to take care of. People are always pigeonholing things, especially genres. As I've gotten older, we've got subgenres of everything. Like, think about metal. There's like black metal, doom metal. There's so many different subgenres, even of hip hop. It doesn't matter what it is. There's about 30 different categories for everything. Now, art is subjective. So therefore, horror films are subjective. What is horror? What's the definition of great horror? Well, that's kind of in the eye of the beholder. There's somebody who might really dig the original Nosferatu and think it's brilliant. Other people might tell you that the Toxic Avenger is their favorite horror movie, even though it's really not a horror movie, but it has elements of it. Nightmare Before Christmas is a horror movie. Look, folks, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble, 
But the way it kind of trickles down is that anything can really be horror, right? We always talk about all these great films. Like, are, are the films of Hitchcock, are they suspense films? Is Psycho a suspense film? Is it horror? Is it a thriller? What's Jacob's Ladder? Is Jacob's Ladder psychological horror? What about the A24 stuff? That's elevated horror? Look, it doesn't matter what it is. doesn't matter what bin you want to stick it under. A good movie is a good movie. So that's the great thing about horror. There's all these little different pockets within its own little universe. And I dig that. But you have to accept the fact that people have different definitions. And a lot of that revolves around fear. If we're talking about something that's scary, some people hate that movie Arachnophobia because they hate spiders. Some people, Close Encounters of the Third Kind scares them because they're scared of aliens. So again, we go back to horror and its subjective nature. Which kind of brings me to my next point, is that Beetlejuice is a horror movie. It's pretty damn near horrific if you start thinking about it. It's about a bio-exorcist. There's so many elements of it that are absolutely macabre and sinister. And it's pretty crazy, because today we're going to go through the origins of that film, and we're going to find out that it started out as a far darker project than what ended up on the silver screen. Now, because I have to take you down memory lane, in 1988, burning up the charts this week was Get Out of My Dreams and Get Into My Car by Billy Ocean. And on that note, Get into my pod, but you're already here. I was going to do something funny with the Billy Ocean joke, but I really don't have anything. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting. I appreciate it. I appreciate you. Now, let's get into this episode. The Ghost with the Most. Full disclosure, no one but Tim Burton could have directed this film. It's just too damn weird. You know what I'm talking about, and you can say it with me. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. That's right. This is the film that, I mean, well, we'll get into it. From the director of Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Adam and Barbara are ghosts. What's the good of being a ghost if you can't frighten people away? Their house is being haunted by the living. Maybe the house could use a little remodeling. And they can't scare them into leaving. They're dead. It's a little late to be neurotic. So they're calling on Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Who's no ordinary ghost. Yeah, you don't want his help. Can you be scary? What do you think of this? Now, the party's over. You want somebody out of the house? I want to get somebody out of your house. <laughs> but the fun has just begun. It's showtime. Learn to throw your voice, fool your friends, fun and party. Not bad. This is amazing. You want a cigarette? Oh, no, thank you. Oh, yeah, here I come, baby. He's guaranteed to put some life... Attention, keyboard shoppers. ...in your afterlife. Michael Keaton 
is Beetlejuice. I'm the ghost with the most, babe. Following the financial success of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which was made in 1985, Tim Burton became a bankable director. And he began working on a script with Sam Hamm for a little film you might know as Batman. So Warner Brothers was willing to pay for the development of Batman. They were less than willing to greenlight Batman. They would pay to have it written, but they were still unsure whether or not they were going to try and bring the Cape Crusader to the big screen. Pretty much, Burton gets completely disheartened by this whole process. He's saying to himself, you know, we're putting in all this work, we're trying to develop this movie, but they don't want to put up the money. They don't want to make it happen. The reality of the situation is that Warner Brothers owns DC Comics. They're, in fact, they own Batman. So it's not like they can go to another studio and say, hey, we've got this great script for Batman because no one else has that intellectual property. You've got all these things going on where Tim Burton's trying to find his next project. He came off of the success of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which had been a huge hit, made a ton of money. Tim Burton was about to give up. He was literally at the end of his rope. And what pretty much put the nail in the coffin for him was someone sent him the screenplay for Hot to Trot, which eventually became the Bobcat Goldthway film with a talking horse. Uh, believe it or not, folks... At one point, that was supposed to star Sam Kinison, but uh, it just didn't work out, and he got Bobcat Goldthway. So David Geffen, who you might know from SKG DreamWorks, or better yet, Geffen Records, had a script that he bought many years ago. And he says to Burton, I think you could do something with this. It was written by Michael McDowell, who had written the script for The Jar, an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which was actually directed by Tim Burton. Tim Burton reads this script, and it knocks him on his ass. And he says, this is what we're doing. We're going to put Batman to the side. We'll, at a later juncture, we'll get to it. But right now, we need to focus on this movie. Now, Warner Brothers was kind of like on the fence. They're like, all right, it's kind of weird, but it's not going to have the price tag that the Batman movie would have. So they're a little more free with the cash. However, they demand there be some rewrites because they do not like this screenplay. They have a lot of problems with it. Larry Wilson was brought on board to continue rewriting work with McDowell. Through Even though Burton replaced McDowell and Wilson with Warren Scarron due to creative differences. We're going to get into who Warren Scarron is in a second. Uh, he later passed, unfortunately, in 1990. Dude was absolute genius. McDowell's original script is far less comedic. Okay, let me get that off the, off the bat. It's dark. I mean, it's super dark. Let me just give you, um, give you an idea of what McDowell's original script was like, because it's wild. The Maitland's car crash is depicted graphically. Barbara's arm is crushed. The couple are screaming for help as they slowly drown the river. And this is all shown on screen. A reference to this remained as Barbara remarks that her arm feels frozen upon returning to a ghost. So part of that kind of made it into the final film. But instead of possessing the Dietzes and forcing them to dance, you know, during dinner, the Maitlands cause a vine-patterned carpet to come to life and attack the Dietzes by tangling them in their chairs. See, the character of Beetlejuice 
envisioned by McDowell as kind of a winged demon who also takes the form of a short Middle Eastern man and he talks like a black guy is also intent on killing the Dietzes rather than scaring them. And the whole point of this original script is that Beetlejuice wants to have sex with Lydia, their teenage daughter. So you could see Warner Brothers gets this script and they're saying to themselves, wait, this is supposed to be a tentpole blockbuster picture. Like, how is this going to work? Now, in the movie, he wants to marry her. But in the original screenplay, he just wants to fuck her. That's the whole point of Beetlejuice, the original screenplay. In this version of the script, Beetlejuice only needs to be exhumed from his grave to be summoned, after which he is free to wreak havoc. He, he cannot be summoned or controlled by saying his name three times and wanders the world freely, appearing to torment different characters in different manifestations. McDowell's script also featured a second Deech child, nine-year-old Kathy, the only person able to see the Maitlands and the subject of Beetlejuice's homicidal wrath in the film's climax, during which he mutilates her while in the form of a rabid squirrel before revealing his true form. So, what they did was they took the original version of Lydia and they aged her down a little bit. They made her a teenager. And then they scrapped the Kathy character, which was supposed to be the younger sister. And they basically made an amalgamation of those two sisters into one character. Now, this is the part some of you might know, and it is, it is absolutely crazy. Burton's original choice for Beetlejuice was Sammy Davis Jr. And he was sold, and, you know, at this point, I think Sammy Davis Jr. was like in his 60s or 70s. He was convinced He's like, we got to get, there's nobody else can play this. I read this script. He's like, I see it in my head. It's got to be Sammy Davis Jr. So the producers were like, listen, Sammy Davis Jr. is not really the box office draw that he, I mean, honestly, there was a lot of problems with racism. And I feel that Sammy Davis really never got, if it wasn't for Frank Sinatra, I don't think that Sammy Davis would have played a lot of rooms because he stood up for him. And people forget what things were like not too long ago. It was not pretty. The world was a much uglier place. So Warner Brothers basically nixes. They're like, no, you, you can't have Sam. Nobody's going to watch this movie with Sammy Davis Jr. as the star. So, of course, Burton, he's a very sensitive guy. And he gets disheartened very easily, especially when he has a clear vision of what he wants to accomplish. So the producers said we think Dudley Moore would be a good choice as Beetlejuice. Nope. Burton basically said, I, I don't think that's going to work, and I think he's too old. Um, they got as far as to do makeup tests, and Dudley Moore basically refused to do them. He's like, I'm not going to wear all that makeup. So there goes the second choice. Now, the third choice, this one is going to shock you. So Warner Brothers were pretty hot on Sam Kinison at this point. They had seen him in Rodney Dangerfield's Back to School, and they said, this, this is the guy. This is going to be great. Sam Kinison read the script, and he basically told Tim Burton to his face, I wouldn't wipe my ass with this. So Kinison completely walks from the role. So David Geffen um, had a close personal friend in Michael Keaton, and he says, I think Michael would be great for this part. And Burton was really unfamiliar at that point with Keaton's work, but he was quickly convinced. 
And he did a couple of screen tests with Michael Keaton. And it was completely eye-opening. Like, this was kind of the role he was born to play. This guy was born to play Beetlejuice. And this turned into a very great working relationship and a friendship that went on for many years. Now, we got to nail down some of this other cast. Now that we got Keaton and we know who is Beetlejuice, we got to get a Lydia. So, the Lydia Dietz part kind of went as a huge casting call around Hollywood. Every young actress that you could think of tested for this part. Um, you want to know who auditioned and who, it, and you're going to be shocked who it almost came down to, but check this out. Sarah Jessica Parker auditioned, Brooke Shields, Lori Laughlin, uh, who's from Full House, Diane Lane, Justine Bateman, Molly Ringwald, Juliette Lewis, but it almost came down to Jennifer Connelly and Alyssa Milano. With, a Melissa, with Alyssa Milano being the front runner, well, we'll get to that in a second. Basically, they went and they saw a rider. They saw Winona Ryder in uh, Lucas. And they said, this girl, she's amazing. Like, this, this is the girl that should be playing the part. And if Winona Ryder didn't take the part, they were basically going to give it to Alyssa Milano which is fucking insane. Cause look, I love Alyssa Milano. She's beautiful. She's wonderful. I don't think she's that great of an actress. I've never seen charmed. I'm sorry. It's just not that appealing. Even though I would probably have sex with a majority of the cast. Uh, I just not my cup of tea. Now Burton pretty much knew all along that Ryder was going to play the part. So he was kind of hoping that Alyssa Milano would drop out of the project. Ultimately, it worked out and we got Winona Ryder. And I have to tell you, one of the things that I, I kept reading and running into is that Burton, Winona Ryder, and Michael Keaton became really good friends. And that's part of the magic of this movie and why this movie works. Because they were like kids goofing off, uh, doing a summer stage production of something. It, it, this was a fun, this was like summer camp to them. And I think that's a testament to why this movie works so much. So we got to cast the mother, Delia Dietz. Who who are we gonna who are we gonna get? Believe it or not, they cast Angelica Houston, and uh, she had to drop out of the movie. She she was she you know she was gonna play the mother. She just dropped out and said that you know it was due to some kind of an illness. It was never disclosed what was going on. There was also rumors that. You know, she was with Jack Nicholson and that Jack Nicholson got wind of the script and said, you know, Angelica, you can't do this movie. This is people did not believe in Beetlejuice. If there's anything you take home today is that nobody believed in this movie. Nobody. They did not want to make this movie, but ultimately it came together and we'll get there. So Angelica Houston is out. Catherine O'Hara reads for the part and... She quickly signed on. She was like almost, you know, like it was one for one. And while Burton claimed it took a lot of time to convince other cast members to sign on, they didn't know what to think of this weird script. So the casting calls go out. But some of these actors who, you know, the better known actors read the script and they're just like, Jesus Christ, this is so fucking weird and dark. Like, how is any of this going to work? Now, this is, this is a part that surprised me. The picture is greenlit, and we're going into production. B. 
Beetlejuice's budget was $15 million. $1 million was given over to visual effects work. Think about all the amazing shit that is in Beetlejuice. That was done for a million dollars. Like, most movies you watch now, like, the, the VFX budget is like half of the movie. If they shoot a movie for $100 million, it's like $50 million in VFX work. $1 million. And as I've gotten older, and I've rewatched the movie, and I've learned more about filmmaking, I see a lot of the cheats. I see the things that he did to accomplish what, what it is he set out to do. But still... I, I'm telling you, 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 well, after you're done listening to this, go back and watch Beetlejuice, man. It is visually, it's a sumptuous movie. And recently Warner Brothers had redone, they just did the 4K. It looks beautiful. I mean, God, it's just the color saturation, everything. It's beautiful. So here's the thing. Considering the scale and scope of the effects, which included stop motion, replacement animation, prosthetic makeup, puppetry and blue screen techniques it was always burton's intention to make the similar style of like b movies that he grew up with you know kind of chintzy and cheeky he was even quoted as saying i wanted to make them look cheap and purposely fake looking so this is where it gets a little bit weird fans of film will know the name anton first he's worked on a ton of great stuff Burton had wanted to hire Anton first. He was so impressed with his work uh, on The Company of Wolves, which is a great film from 1984. Uh, He was also the production designer on Full Metal Jacket. So, first wants to do uh, Beetlejuice. He wants to work with Tim Burton, but he signed on to do High Spirits, which is a terrible movie. Go back to, it was a comedy comedy. from that time period, it's like 87, 88. It's not very funny. It has Peter O'Toole in it. Yeah, it's High Spirits is a terrible movie. Like if you grew up in the time period where they played it consistently on HBO, you'll know it's not very good. With Anton first not being available to do this film, he hires Bo Welch. And Bo Welch would end up doing a bunch of fucking uh, movies with Burton, including Edward Scissorhands and Batman Returns, two of my favorites uh, in his filmography. So he gets Bo Welch to start building some of these sets, get an idea for what this world visually is going to look like. Basically, it kind of worked out. The studio saw what they were creating and what they were doing with the visual effects work. I mean, look, the proof is in the pudding. We're still talking about Beetlejuice after all these years. There must be something good about it. I really, I just got to tell this quick story. And I know we're out of context because I'm trying to give this to you in order, but just hear me out on this, folks. Okay, they do a test screening of Beetlejuice when they did how to raw cut of it. And they basically got really positive feedback. And Warner Brothers was shocked. They're like, this, even though they greenlit it, even though they paid the money, Warner Brothers did not like this movie. They just, they thought it was too weird. But the test screenings were really positive. It forced Burton to go meet with Bo Welch and Michael Keaton, and they had to film an epilogue, you know, featuring Beetlejuice foolishly angering the witch doctor. And you got to think about that scene and how it's like, it's, it's like one of my favorite scenes in the movie, but it wasn't originally in there. When the test screenings happened, they kept asking, like, well, what happened to Beetlejuice? Where did he go? 
So they had to put some kind of a visual reference point. And Burton was like, let's make it kind of funny. Let's, you know, add a, a bit of a, you know, comedic twist to it. I can also tell you this. Again, the I don't know if they're the bad guy because they did make the movie happen and they financed it. Warner Brothers hated the title Beetlejuice. It's, it was a huge sticking point. Even when they first gave Burton the script, they said, this is this movie Beetlejuice. We're going to change the title. We absolutely hate it. So Warner Brothers comes to Burton. This is during almost the finish of the production. And they said, we're going to call it House Ghosts because everybody loves, you know, everybody here, we all love the title House Ghosts. And Burton said, oh my God. He's like, this will kill the movie. He's like, this is not, it has to be Beetlejuice. This is, this is the movie we're making. So as a joke, Burton suggested the name Scared Sheetless. And he was horrified because he, he tells them, okay, yeah, we're going to call the movie Scared Sheetless. The Warner Brothers executives liked it. And he was like, oh my God, what have I done? So the working titles, originally the script is called Beetlejuice. They wanted, um, <laughs> I almost forgot the title of the, of the, of the, uh, the other movie house ghosts it's such a generic title too like house ghosts like what does that infer i guess it's house there's ghosts i i don't know but scared sheetless is terrible but i kind of like it i couldn't imagine them using it but burton was horrified he's like oh my god they're really gonna call this movie scared sheetless and then i think basically what happened was it went further up the totem pole and they're like, it sounds too much like scared shitless. So we can't use that title. It's just not going to happen. People are, people are going to go and we put the billboards and the posters out and they're going to put shit on there. So <laughs> Warner Brothers concedes and they're like, all right, we're going to call it Beetle Beetlejuice. Now, this script, again, went through many changes. This is another script we had talked in previous episode, Nightmare on Elm Street 4. It was always in a, a state of flux. It was always being rewritten. Now, in another version of the script, the film was to have concluded with the Maitlands, Dietzes, and Otho conducting an exorcism ritual that, that destroys Beetlejuice, and the Maitlands transforming into miniature versions of themselves and moving into Adam's model of their home, which they refurbish to look like the house before the Dietzes moved in. So that was one of the original endings. They were they were going to shrink down the you know the Maitlands and they were just going to go live in that village uh, that was upstairs in the attic. I, I don't know if that's a good ending. I, I mean I I don't think so. It's kind of shitty. So co-author and producer Larry Wilson he's talked about the negative reaction to McDowell's original script at Universal where he was employed at the time. I won't name any names here, but I worked at Universal Studios at the time. I was the director of development for director Walter Hill. Now, Walter Hill is an absolute icon. He's produced everything, whether it's Alien, and he's directed everything, whether it's 48 Hours or Streets of Fire. He's, he's done it all. We could go on for days. I love Walter Hill. I think, I think Walter Hill might be one of the most underrated directors and producers of all time, but that's just, you know, a hot take from me. Um, I had a very good relationship with prominent executive at uh, Universal. He liked me, and he liked what I was doing with Walter and the material I was bringing in. So, at this point, 
Uh, Larry Wilson brings the script over to uh, Walter Hill. I gave him Beetlejuice to read. I gave it to him on a Friday, and on Monday, his assistant called me and said, well, listen, Walter really wants to meet with you. My initial reaction uh, was that he loved it, and he couldn't wait to talk to me, and he wouldn't have wanted him to see me so soon if he didn't love it. So he goes into his office, and I have to read this verbatim, folks, because it's, it's that interesting. So Walter Hill takes uh, Larry Wilson into his office, and he says, what are you doing with your career? This piece of weirdness is what you're going to go out into the world with. You're developing as a very good executive. You've got great taste in material. Why are you going to squander all of that for this piece of shit? It's basically what he was saying. This script is a complete piece of shit. And Walter Hill told Larry Miller, if you make this movie, it's going to be career suicide. That goes to show you, right? Shortly after that, Wilson quietly took the script and sold it to David Geffen. And uh, I guess it all worked out. Now, we got problems with this script. Look, we've got our stars. We've got our budget. We're working on sets. We're doing um, the special effects. It's all coming together. So we need a rewrite. And Warner Brothers at that point had a lot of money to burn. Not enough money to burn to make a big Batman movie because they were too scared to give Tim Burton the money for that, or anybody for that matter. We get Warren Scarron. Now, uh, like I said, Warren Scarron was an amazing screenwriter. So what was Warren Scarron up to before he wrote, well, rewrote the screenplay for Beetlejuice? Oh, he wrote a little movie called Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop, and then went on to write Batman. I just want to let you know that, like, so the first, the two movies, this guy, this is his career, and this is why you never know, dude. Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, and Beetlejuice. And then the year after that, Batman. Think about that. Think about, I mean, that's like one year after the other. Like, every year of the 80s, this guy knocks out an iconic script. And it, it, it's absolutely crazy. Scaring comes in, and he essentially says to Burton, he's like, a lot of this stuff is not going to work. It's absolutely... Just not going to work. His first rewrite drastically shifted the film's tone. It eliminated the graphic nature of the Maitland's deaths while depicting the afterlife as a complex bureaucracy, if that makes any sense. Scarron's rewrite also altered McDowell's depiction of the limbo that keeps Barbara and Adam trapped inside their home. In McDowell's script, it takes the form of a massive void with giant clock gears that shred the fabric of time and space as they move. Scarron knew that a lot of these elements that were much darker had to go in order to make this movie work. Because Warner Brothers wasn't going to spend all this money on an R-rated movie. They were told, you know, Burton was told uh, very early on, we want a PG-13 film that can play to most of the family. So... Scarron had Barbara and Adam encounter different limbos every time they leave their home, including the clock world, uh, the sandworms world, identified as Saturn's moon Titan. Scarron also introduced the motif of music accompanying Barbara and Adam's ghostly hijinks. Although his script specified R&B tunes instead of, you know, the Harry Belafonte classic that we all know, it was concluded with Lydia dancing 
to When a Man Loves a Woman with Beetlejuice. Again, just kind of weird, kind of creepy that this movie would have ended with When a Man Loves a Woman and you've got a teenage Winona Ryder finally succumbing to the seduction of Beetlejuice as your ending. So yeah, that wasn't going to work. Scarron's first draft retained some of the more sinister characteristics of McDowell's Beetlejuice, kind of toned down the characters to make him a more troublesome pervert rather than blatantly murderous. So, you know, <laughs> I mean, look, you couldn't make this movie now. Like, it, it, there's a lot of things, there's a lot of objectionable things that you couldn't do with Beetlejuice in present day that they did in 88. I think they got away with a lot of stuff. So Beetlejuice's true form in the original script was that of a Middle Eastern man, and much of the dialogue was written in what they called African-American vernacular English, which was Beetlejuice was supposed to be a small Middle Eastern man that spoke like a black man. And this version concluded with the Dietzes returning to New York and leaving Lydia in the care of the Maitlands, who, with Lydia's help, transformed the exterior of their home into a stereotypical haunted house while returning the interior to its previous state. It would have featured deleted scenes such as the real estate agent, Jane, trying to convince the Dietzes to allow her to sell the house for them, having sold it for them, you know, having sold it to them in the first place, Charles and Delia decline. And there's a revelation in this script on how Beetlejuice had died centuries earlier, that he attempted to hang himself while he was drunk, only to mess it up, and then died slowly choking to death rather than quickly snapping his neck. Yeah, that's pretty dark. And that's how he wound up working for Juno before striking it out on his own as a freelance bio-exorcist. So you can see there's a lot of problems with this script. There's a lot of dark elements that kind of had to be molded. You know, it's like you got those rough edges that need to be rounded down a little bit. And I think Beetlejuice is better for it. I mean, there is a world where there's an R-rated version of this film starring Sammy Davis Jr. And um, I kind of want to see that version, that multiverse version of Beetlejuice, or House Ghosts, or Scared Sheetless. Retrospectively, McDowell was impressed at how many people made the connection between the film's title and the star Beetlejuice. He added that the writers and producers had received the suggestion that the sequel be named after a character called Sangelock. Now, Sangelock was supposed to appear at the end of Beetlejuice, and he was supposed to be this big bad that Beetlejuice would have taken on in a sequel. Didn't happen. <laughs> if you're living in our timeline, it didn't happen. If you're living in the Sammy Davis Jr. timeline, it might, it might very well be there. We'll be right back with more of The Offering with Jerry Horror. If you're anything like me, you're always on the lookout for cool, new, original gift items that you could give to your horror and genre-obsessed loved ones, or even something you could get to treat yourself. I found the perfect thing for you. Geek Emporium has custom hand-etched glass art that's the perfect gift. Believe me, when you see these glass mugs, glass jars, and original prints, you're going to want all of them for your own collection. Geek Emporium covers every genre you can imagine. Marvel. Star Wars, 80s and 90s horror. I'm looking through the website right now, geekemporium.nyc, and I can see featured, they got some gorgeous stuff from Labyrinth with Jennifer Connelly, 
A Nightmare Before Christmas. I see Brandon Lee's The Crow. They cover the whole genre gamut. It, it's incredible. I met up with these guys at Eternal Con on Long Island. I got my hands on a Sweet Texas Chainsaw Massacre Leatherface Glass mug and a, a Freddy Krueger wooden coffin. All custom. These are hand-drawn. They were drawing it right in front of me. So what are you waiting for? You can always check out their Etsy shop or head over to geekemporium.nyc right now and scroll through the goods. Trust me, your geek-loving loved one will thank you later. Stay spooky all year long at Strange Love Parlor, Long Island's exquisite oddities and curiosity parlor in Lindenhurst, New York. They've got some ghastly apparel. Strange Love Parlor supplies an array of goth jewelry, unisex horror-themed gear, Halloween accoutrement, monstrous purses and wallets, spooky pins, patches, and stickers, providing you with the most wonderful and the most strange of treasures. Visit Strange Love Parlor regularly to find the item of your dreams, or perhaps even your nightmares. Grab your ghoul gang and visit today. Strange Love Parlor in Lindenhurst, Long Island, New York. You're listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. Got a question or a story you want to share with me? It might be featured in a future episode. Email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit me up on Twitter at Jerry Hara. I'm also on Instagram. You can find me there at Jerry Hara. Rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and you might find your review in an upcoming episode. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to The Offering. Now back to the show. You gotta say my name three times. What's your name? Well, uh, I can't tell you. Why not? But you know why? Because if I tell you, you tell your friends. Your friends are calling me on the horn all the time. I gotta show up at shopping centers for openings and sign autographs and shit like that. And that makes my life a hell, okay? A living hell. But, maybe, do you have a pen? Maybe we can, oh, I know. You can play charades. Yeah. Ah, good, good. Ah, here we go then. Ready? Um, two words. Right. Uh, first word, two syllables. You know, just I don't know what your signal means. Turn around and look behind you. Hi, how are you? A beetle. God, okay. Now, two, take one. Uh, breakfast, orange, orange beetle, uh, beetle fruit. Beetle breakfast, uh, beetle drink, beetle, uh, 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 beetle juice. Yes, that's it. Name's Beetlejuice. Ah, you said it twice. Just say it once more. Come on. It was you, wasn't it? Me. The snake. No, what snake? You kids in your imagination. Just say it. Uh, I want to talk to Barbara. No, you don't need Barbara. Just say it. Now, we had to figure out where we're going to shoot this. And the setting of the film in the script is in the fictional village of Winter River, Connecticut. Now, they tried to film in Connecticut and the brutal winters and everything else, the change of seasons were just not going to work. So all the outdoor sequences were filmed in East Corneth, which is a village in the town of Corneth, Vermont. Uh, the interiors for this film were shot at Culver Studios in Culver City, California. Principal photography finally began on March 11th, 1987. 
we're slowly getting there, but this is going to take some odd twists and turns, folks. So you're going to have to <laughs> you're going to have to put on your safety belt and hang in for dear life because we're going to some weird places with this Beetlejuice episode. What was the reception of this film? Ultimately, after it was shot, and you'll see Beetlejuice opened theatrically in the United States on March 30th, 1988. It earned eight million dollars in its opening weekend and eventually grossed $73 million in North America alone. Beetlejuice was a financial success, recouping its U.S. $15 million budget, and it was also the 10th highest grossing film of 1988. So, not bad, right? You know, I mean, you threw in $15 million, and you made 73, and that's not including what it did worldwide. And again, people forget how much money was made off of VHS, VHS was a license to print money, especially in the 80s and 90s, of course. I have to talk about the critical reception really quickly. Got to go over this. Roger Ebert hated this movie. Like, he absolutely hated Beetlejuice. His argument was that the film was all spectacle and no character development. He also had asked um, in the Chicago Sun-Times, he said, who would enjoy this movie? And I guess the answer is all of us, because we really love Beetlejuice all these years later. Beetlejuice was met with a mostly positive response. Based on 62 reviews collected by Rotten Tomatoes, Beetlejuice received an 85% overall approval rating, with a weighted average, critically, of 7.2 out of 10. The website's critical consensus reads, Brilliantly bizarre and overflowing with ideas, Beetlejuice offers some of Michael Keaton's most deliciously manic work. Creepy, funny film for the whole family. Now, it's insane because averaged on Metacritic, the film holds a B. And I I can't agree. I mean, I can't agree. What am I saying? I can't agree. I can agree. I think Beetlejuice, it, it still slaps. Like I said, I just recently watched that 4K version. And all these years later, it holds up. Now, you're probably still wondering, where is this episode coming? Because we didn't learn anything about the making of the movie. We're getting there. Don't don't you worry, dear listener. At the 61st Academy Awards, Beetlejuice won the award, the Academy Award, for Best Makeup. um, And the Academy of Film and Television Arts nominated the film with Best Visual Effects and Makeup. Um, It won a BAFTA Award for Best Visual Effects. It won Best Horror Film. Again, remember what I was telling you. What do we consider a horror film? What is the, you know, what is right? What is wrong? It's in the eye of the beholder. Art is subjective. Beetlejuice won Best Horror Film and Best Makeup at the 1988 Saturn Awards, which was basically where all the genre films used to go. If it's science fiction, fantasy, horror, that was, you know, you have to remember all this stuff. I mean, even Beetlejuice winning an Academy Award for makeup, it's like, that was a big deal at the time. Genre movies really did not win awards. They still don't. They still don't. The Academy, even last year, they're desperate. They're like, oh, you know, they did the fan choice thing. And it was like, okay, here's Avengers Endgame and Zack Snyder's Justice League. And it's like, I get what they're trying to do to bring in viewership and whatnot. But ultimately, it's it's one of those things where you want films to win upon their own merit. You know, like Heath Ledger deserved an Oscar for the Joker. And then it's really weird because what's his face? The, the Phoenix boy, the, <laughs> the Phoenix boy, the Joaquin Phoenix, 
he ends up winning the Academy Award too for Joker. So things have really changed. If you go from 1988 to in the year of our Lord 2022, it's a much different place. And these genre films can not only make a ton of money, they've become the norm. Everything is kind of a genre film, you know? Some of the best films that I've seen this year and last year, they were genre films. They're not even like straight dramas or, you know, there's just a lot going on. All right. A lot going on. I'm sorry, folks. I, I, I digress. Um, I have to just put this out there. Uh, this also won a Hugo award for best dramatic presentation. I don't quite understand that. Um, it won a, it just, it won a ton of awards and Beetlejuice was placed 88th. Get it? 1988, 88th in the American Film Institute's list of best comedies. So ultimately, Beetlejuice ended up being a success for everybody involved. I'll be honest with you, Keaton's performance is incredible. Like, you watch Beetlejuice and you don't see Michael Keaton. You believe that there is a living, breathing, flesh-and-blood creature called Beetlejuice that is inhabiting your screen. I mean, he really completely loses himself in that performance is a testament to him as an actor, but it's also a testament to Burton as for knowing what he wanted out of this film. And this is why Burton and Keaton kind of forged this relationship. It's absolutely kinetic. I mean, obviously they go and do Batman, you know, the next year, but they most recently worked together. I think it was Dumbo. They did. I didn't see Dumbo. I really don't give a shit. I know Danny DeVito's in it. I love Danny. Maybe I'll watch it tonight. I got Disney Plus. Also, speaking of, can I go off on a little tangent here? I have Disney Plus, and I swear to God, I never watch it. It's like this weird thing where I pay $7 a month to the Disney Corporation to retain most of my childhood memories. I'm like, hey, Disney, here's seven bucks. Anytime I want to go down the memory hole, I can just log into Disney Plus. But I find myself moving forward with a lot of the media I consume. I go back and I watch a lot of these older movies, but I'm looking f- I'm looking forward. And I'll be honest with you, I've been saying this lately. I'm so burnt out with the Marvel product. I'm burnt out with the Star Wars product. And I love this stuff. I love Star Wars. I love Marvel. But I'm so fucking burnt out. That's another episode for another time. This is where it gets fun, folks. It gets really wacky. I got to put on my Beetlejuice hat for this one, folks. Oh, boy. Here we go. You ready? The sequels. Because, man, this is fucking crazy. All right. Strap in, folks. In 1990, Burton hires Jonathan Gems to write a sequel called Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian. Tim thought it would be funny to match the surfing backdrop of a beach movie with some sort of German expressionism. Because... They're totally wrong together, and it just would be a really weird mesh of styles. Now, the story... For, I'm sorry, I just got a kick out of the Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian title. It's a star. I'm, I love it. I love it. The story followed the Dietz family moving to Hawaii, where Charles is developing a resort. They soon discover that his company is building on the burial ground of an ancient uh, Hawaiian god called Kahuna. The evil kahuna comes back from the afterlife to cause trouble, and Beetlejuice becomes a hero by winning a surf contest with magic. Now, look, 
That sounds absolutely batshit crazy, but I am here for it 100%. There is a perfect world where Beetlejuice goes Hawaiian, gets made, and I'm believe me, I have a good feeling. I trust Tim Burton. I trust Keaton. I think it actually probably would have worked. So, the script actually makes the rounds at Warner Brothers, and everybody likes it. There's there's no, like, it wasn't the, the push and pull, the tug of war that was with the original film. Everybody really digs this Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian script. So Keaton and Ryder agree. They read the script, and then like a day later, they're both like, we're in. We're totally in. At that point, Burton went to Warner Brothers, and they're like, okay, it's in development, and we're going to make it. So for all intents and purposes, Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian came very close to being made. But with that being said, Keaton and Ryder would only agree to do Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian if Tim Burton was directing. Otherwise, they had no interest. But here's the problem. They were trying to do Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian right after Batman. But Warner Brothers said, no, no, no. You're not doing anything but Batman Returns. Basically, in a lot of ways, Tim Burton felt that Batman Returns wasn't completely fleshed out and ready. So he was going to try to take some time and develop some more aspects of the script. I think it's a perfect movie. I love it. I love Batman Returns. I think it might be the best of the Batman films. Hot take. Go fuck yourself if you don't like it. Uh, engage with me on social media, at Jerry Har. Uh, there's social discourse for all of this bullshit. So Burton's still interested in Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian, early 1991. You know, they, they did the sequel. They did Batman Returns. And he goes to Warner Brothers and he says, Man, really still would like to do that Beetlejuice movie. He was impressed with Daniel Waters' work. And if you don't know Daniel Waters, he made Heathers. And uh, Burton approached him for a rewrite. He said, you know, this is the guy. This guy should rewrite the script and maybe we could take it to another level, a different tone. However, he eventually signed Waters to write the script for Batman Returns because Warner Brothers would not allow Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian to move forward. So by August 1993, producer David Geffen hired Pamela Norris, who had made Troop Beverly Hills and had worked on Saturday Night Live for many years, to rewrite the movie. Again, now this movie hasn't even, it hasn't been greenlit or anything, and it's already on its third iteration of the script. But wait, there's more, because if we've had three rewrites, why not a fourth one? So who does Warner Brothers approach to rewrite this film in 1996? Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith rewrites Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian for the fourth time, and Essentially, Smith says, look, I'm really entrenched in doing all the work for Superman Lives. If you don't know about Kevin Smith and the whole Superman Lives debacle, he's done about a thousand stand-up specials talking all about it. It's very funny. And Smith later joked his response to Warner Brothers was, didn't we say all we needed to say in the first Beetlejuice? Must we go tropical? That sounds like such a Kevin Smith thing to say. So effectively, after, this four, after trying to get the fourth rewrite from Kevin Smith, it goes quiet. It's absolute radio silence. And Burton is on to moving into all kinds of different things. You know, 
He goes back and he works with Disney again, a.k.a. Touchstone Pictures for like Nightmare Before Christmas. He's doing a bunch of different things. So because of time, because of lack of interest from Warner Brothers, it gets shelved. That is, until March of 1997. (laughs) Basically, one of the executives at Warner Brothers decides to release the statement saying, the Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian script is still owned by the David Geffen Company and it will likely never get made. You couldn't really do it now anyway. Winona is too old for the role, and the only way they could make it would be to totally recast it. Not wrong. I mean, okay. That was the last time on the books in 1997 that this movie was actually mentioned, and I think the reality of the situation was they didn't, because David Geffen owned the rights to it, and he was one of the producers on Beetlejuice, They didn't want to pay him again. And they felt that if they were going to do another Beetlejuice movie at this present time, it would have to be completely rebooted, which in the late 90s, that was not a... Reboots didn't happen. There there weren't reboots. You had the original continuity. There were people who were disappointed that Adam West did not play Batman in Batman 89. So you got to keep continuity. You got to keep Adam West in there. And I get it. Like, I get it, but... Things didn't get rebooted. I'm just saying that. Like, it just wasn't part of the vernacular. The closest thing that we had was James Bond being played by a different actor. That was as close to a reboot as we got in those days. Kevin Smith, man, um, he's he's funny. But there's another writer. He This guy, Seth Graham Smith, you guys know him. He's written a ton of great stuff. And he basically went on record in 98 saying... I don't want to be the guy that destroys the legacy and the memory of the first film. I would rather die. I would rather just not make it. I'd rather just throw the whole thing away to make something that pays no respect and doesn't live up or even close to the legacy of the first film. Radio Silence. It's 1998. That's basically with Seth Graham Smith, who had been charged with trying to rewrite the Beetlejuice Goes Hawaiian script in 1998. Goes Quiet. Here we go. Here we go again. September 2011. Warner Brothers hires Seth Graham Smith, who collaborated with Burton on Dark Shadows and Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, which, let me just say for the fact, if you have a 3D television or a way of watching 3D movies, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter slaps. It's goofy as hell, but it's a fun movie to watch. It's a perfect hangover movie. You you just watch it, all right? It's good. Well, it's not good, but it's entertaining, all right? So sue me. I like a movie that's not good. All right, whatever. It is what it is. Uh, So they go to Seth Seth Graham Smith and they say, we want you to write and produce a sequel to Beetlejuice. And he's like, all right, this this could be the proper time to do it. But let's do a story that's worthy of us actually doing this for real. Something that's not just going to be Beetlejuice 2 cashing in. You know, it's not about forcing a remake or a reboot down someone's throat. So he had the right idea. Warner Brothers at that point, because everything now we're in 2011, everything's getting rebooted. In four years, you would get Star Wars The Force Awakens. You you would get um, Jurassic World. Everything was going to be rebooted to some, you know, like, it was just like, if it made money at one point, no matter what the intellectual property was, it was ultimately going to get rebooted, recommodified, and repackaged. For a new audience. And and that was kind of what the big trend was. I want to say 
from like the early 2000s. You know, even if you look at like Batman Begins, which is an absolutely brilliant film, but to a lot of people, it was like, wait, what is this? They weren't ready for Nolan. They weren't ready for Christian Bale. But ultimately, as you know, it worked out. Now, Graham Smith was also adamant that Keaton would return and that Warner Brothers would not recast the role. So he basically put down the gauntlet and said, if we're going to do this, we got to have Keaton. Burton and Keaton have not officially signed on to do this film, but would return if the script is good enough. So Graham Smith, another year goes by, he meets with Keaton in February of 2012. Says, we talked for a couple of hours, we talked about big picture stuff. It's a priority for Warner Brothers, it's a priority for Tim. Everybody's been wanting to do it for 20 years, he'll talk to anybody about it who will listen. And that was the truth. Keaton really wanted to make this film. And it always, it would come up every few years that Warner Brothers wanted a Beetlejuice too, but in some ways they kind of wanted a neutered sequel. And in 2012, if they weren't going to get Keaton and Burton back, they were talking about just completely rewriting it, recasting it, and doing it anew. So... You guys still with me? Because this is absolutely crazy. The idea in 2012, the idea for this film is that it would be set in a real time frame from 1988. I guess what I'm trying to say is it would be as if Beetlejuice happened in real time in 1988. So it would be a true 26, 27 years later sequel. And what's great is that for Beetlejuice, time means nothing in the afterlife. Beetlejuice, you know, like he's like an eternal type of creature. But the world outside is a different story. So, it goes silent again. November 2013. You can see a pattern here, folks. Ryder hinted at a possible return for the sequel as well, saying, I'm sworn to secrecy, and I think that Michael and Tim would kill me, but it sounds like something might just be happening. It's 27 years later, and I have to say I love Lydia Dietz so much. She was and is such a huge part of me. I would really be interested in seeing what she's doing 27 years later. Ryder confirmed that she would only consider making a sequel if Burton and Keaton were involved. Are you ready, folks? Flash forward again. It's December of 2014. Burton stated, it's a character I love. And I miss dearly working with Michael and with Winona. There's only one Beetlejuice. We're working on a script, and I think it's probably closer than ever, and I'd love to work with him again. Flash forward. January 2015. Writer Graham Smith, who's still on... Graham Smith has now been on this screenplay since 2011, and now we're in 2015. He said... He told Entertainment Weekly that the script was finished and that he and Tim had intended to start filming Beetlejuice 2 by the end of the year, and that both Keaton and Ryder would return in their respective roles. In August of 2015, on Late Night with Seth Meyers, Ryder confirmed she would be reprising her role in the sequel. Flash forward, in May 2016, Burton stated, It's something that I want to do. I still really want to do it, but in the right circumstances. It's one of those films where everything has to be right. It's not the kind of movie that cries out for a sequel. It's not the Beetlejuice trilogy. 
So it's something that if the elements are right, because I do love the character and Michael's amazing as that character. So yeah, we'll see. Nothing's concrete yet. Guys, you already know where this is going because you've been listening for this long. In October 2017, Mike Vukanovic wrote and was, well, he was hired to rewrite the script. They, they said, you know what? We don't like Seth Graham Smith, who has been working on this movie for the last seven years. So they finally turned this over and Mike rewrites the script. Flash forward, April 2019. Warner Brothers states on record saying that the sequel has been shelved and will never be made because at this point, Keaton's too old, Burton's on to other things, and Winona Ryder is long in the tooth and nobody would want to see them together at this point. In February of 2022, this year, a sequel was announced again, this time produced by Plan B Entertainment, owned by Brad Pitt, alongside Warner Brothers and Keaton with Ryder reprising their roles. Principal photography is scheduled to begin in late August. So there you go, folks. That See, this is what's so amazing to me, is the story of the sequel to Beetlejuice is so epic. This has been, this has been going on since 1988. They've wanted to make the sequel, and they've tried. They've had all these different writers. They've had different scripts. They've had different iterations. At one point, they were just going to scrap it and reboot it. But here we are, folks, and I'm going to knock on wood. Fingers crossed. I really do hope, even though this is all, at this point, conjecture and hearsay, other parties tell me that it's true. I mean, this was published. What I, you know, A lot of times, I go through various media outlets and sources to get this, but... When I told you about this February 2022 deal with Plan B Entertainment, I mean, this was in Variety. Uh, it was in Deadline. So I hope it happens. I really do. Because I love Michael Keaton as Beetlejuice. I love Winona Ryder as Lydia. And I think the concept of doing it in real time and revisiting Lydia 28, 29 years later would be really cool. I, I You know what? I mean... Is it nostalgia? Yeah, of course it's nostalgia, but I like them as these characters and I would totally pay to see a Beetlejuice sequel. I would have paid in the 90s. I would have paid in the 2010s. I, I don't think it's one of those things. It's like the long gestating Gremlins 3. We all want a Gremlins 3, but why aren't they making it? I don't know. They made a fucking Mountain Dew commercial, so that's about as close as we've gotten. I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the cartoon. I'm a huge fan of the cartoon, which aired on Fox Kids. Uh, it was originally created for ABC. Uh, the series ran for four seasons, the final season airing on Fox, lasting from September 9th, 1989 to December 6th, 1991. Burton would serve as an executive producer. Uh, the character of Beetlejuice was later prominently featured in Teen Titans Go! episode Ghost with the Most, which aired in October 2020 as a part of that show's sixth season. Uh, he was voiced by Alex Brightman, who was actually the first to play Beetlejuice in a Broadway musical. This is where it gets weird, folks. I love the cartoon. The cartoon's great. If you can, go back and watch it. It, it really expands upon what the film did. It has a very unique art style. 
Um, you got Danny Elfman's music. It all really works. It congeals. In 2016, work began on a Broadway stage musical adaptation of the film directed by Alex Timbers and produced by Warner Brothers with music and lyrics by Eddie Perfect. And uh, the musical book was written by Scott Brown and Anthony King. The musical debuted over in England, over in the UK, and eventually the musical premiered its pre-Broadway tryout uh, at the National Theater in Washington, D.C., had a limited run, which went until about 2018. Uh, in December 2019, the producers announced that the production would play its final performance at the Winter Garden Theater on June 6, 2020. Now, of course, the show's run was cut short by three months because in March 2020, uh, we went through this little thing called the COVID-19 pandemic. So, okay, it's Beetlejuice. He's the ghost with the most. Nothing can kill him, right? The bio-exorcist? The show reopened at the Marquis Theater on April 8th, 2022. So no matter what you try to do, you cannot kill Beetlejuice. Look, this is a film that I cite. It's an indelible part of my childhood. I love the cartoon. I love the toys. I, I love everything about Beetlejuice. It's a quintessential 80s movie that is so weird and that's why going through the whole history of all these sequels all this stuff they tried to do over the years and here we are it's finally about to happen maybe i don't know but for one thing beetlejuice has kind of opened up its own path you could make a horror comedy i, I really think that um beetlejuice opened the door for a lot of things that hadn't been done I even feel in my heart things like Shaun of the Dead are very much connected to Beetlejuice. It, it kind of opened that door from a Cobb comedy. Gremlins, too. Gremlins, another one that is really a horror movie. I mean, it's, it's a pretty gruesome movie, but ultimately it was sold to kids and we absolutely loved it. That's kind of what happens. Kids love gruesome stuff. Kids love gross stuff. They love gross-out humor. Uh, which was pretty much the foray, especially of the animated series. I would love to see Michael Keaton return. I would love to see Winona Ryder return. I mean, you know, it's been all these years later. Let's see where Lydia Dietz is. Let's see what she's doing. I don't think it's a bad idea. Uh, everything else has been remade, right? Why not Beetlejuice? It's going to happen at some point. If this, if this film right now with Plan B doesn't happen, if everything falls through, Beetlejuice will return. Um, I don't think it's the best idea. I think there's magic uh, in Burton's work. I think there's magic in the performance of Michael Keaton, and it would be very hard. It's one of those things, like I talk about Ghostbusters, it's a perfect movie. It's lightning in a bottle. It's like Back to the Future or RoboCop. It's a perfect movie. It has all the elements. Would it have been a better movie like Back to the Future with Eric Stoltz? Probably not. It just didn't work. It wasn't meant to be. Folks, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I know it's been a weird one. We took a little bit of a strange journey into Beetlejuice. I wish there was more to talk about on the production of the movie, but the pre-production was mostly where a lot of the story lied and also how they were going to try to make this crazy sequel. The story of the production of Beetlejuice is that Tim Burton and Michael Keaton became great friends and they went on to make a bunch of other movies that made a ton of money. 
And I think that that's something special and it can't be replicated. It's an IP that can't be branded. I can't imagine anyone else playing Beetlejuice, to be perfectly honest with you. And that's no discredit to the cartoon or the Broadway show. I'm sure those were fantastic. But Beetlejuice is a very special film to me. And I think that everybody who grew up with it, or even those who are just discovering it now, will find the same thing. It's a weird lightning storm of a movie that is just pure cinematic magic. And that's something you cannot replicate, especially in 2022. Or, prove me wrong, maybe the sequel happens, maybe it's fantastic. But I guess we're all going to have to tune in and find out. Folks, I want to thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. Thank you for helping support this show. You know, hey, you share it with your friends. You know, maybe you write a review. Maybe you share it. You go on Twitter. I'm, I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. My name's at Jerry Hara. You can find me. Tell me about it. Do you love Beetlejuice? Do you hate Beetlejuice? Was this episode one big mistake? Let me know. I'm curious. I mean, I, I don't know what it's going to be. People would say to me, Jerry, Beetlejuice isn't a real horror movie. And I say, yes, it is. So suck on that. This has been The Offering. I am Jerry Hara. Thank you for listening. Mostly horror, always genre. You've been listening to The Offering with Jerry Hara. I'm very sorry. Produced by Pete Bune. If you have a question or a story you want to share with me, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at jerryhara at gmail.com or hit us up at Twitter at jerryhara or on Instagram at jerryhara. You get in the picture? Subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are provided for you and your family. I want you to enjoy. Just join us next time for another offer. I'm Tom. My partner Mike and I have been friends and co-workers for a long time. And at work, we're known for our daily water cooler conversations about TV shows and movies we are currently watching. Whether we're arguing over which Marvel TV show is the best or agreeing about which Netflix original movie is the worst, the pop culture conversation is always popping on Two Brothers at a Water Cooler. You can listen to Two Brothers at a Water Cooler on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are available. Subscribe and share today. This has been a Sick Boy Wolfgang production. Thank you for listening.